Who were these guys, speaking of the apostles, the 12 apostles? Some people think of the 12 apostles as these stained glass figures who uh, cathedrals have been named after. And um, we kind of shattered that a little bit simply because uh, we're getting to know these guys a little better. And the one thing we're realizing is that they're just ordinary guys like you and I. And it's important to understand that because we've been asking the question, what kind of people does God use for his purposes? What kind of men did God choose? Um, Remember, this was a time in Christ's ministry where he was getting ready to uh, leave the scene, as it were, go back to heaven. And he started this uh, whole process and the church hadn't even really been birthed yet. Pentecost hadn't come yet. And he was getting these 12 individuals ready to serve him and to carry on everything that he began. And if you were going to start a business and you knew that you were going to be dead in six months and you wanted your business to flourish and you need to go out and get a board of people who you could trust to, to turn this business over to, it probably wouldn't be these 12 guys. As a CEO, you'd probably go out and do quality checks on everybody and see what their qualifications were and look at their resumes You'd want people who were talented, gifted in business that could continue what you began. But Jesus didn't do that because what he began was not a business. (laughs) See, this gets mixed up a lot of times in modern day Christianity. A lot of churches look at the church as a business. The pastor's the CEO, the board's the board, and, you know, you're basically a business. You gotta operate it like a business. That means you gotta market it and you gotta do, you know, customer relations. You do all this stuff. Beloved, the church is not a business. It's not an, even an organ, organization. It's a living organism made up of God's people. And so we better be careful when we start applying principles from the business world. Can we learn some things? Definitely. But we better be careful when we begin applying right across the board everything right to the church because the church was not founded as a business. It's not a business today. However, a lot of churches are run like businesses, unfortunately. So the kind of people that Jesus called were interesting folks. But today, I just want you to think with me for a second. If you were to line up qualifications for people to lead your business or to to lead uh, an organization, um, you know, you would probably put them through the ropes. You would want to interview them. You'd want to see what their talents are, their giftings, maybe the experience they've had. You'd want to know, you know, who they maybe served with before or, or on what company they were with. You would do background, maybe just a background check on people to make sure that they're who they say they are. Um, you know, that's so important. Well, life is made up of us meeting the qualifications for everything. I mean, for everything, you have to qualify. You go buy a car, what do they say? Well, if you're going to finance, you've got to qualify. Okay, You even have to qualify to buy the car. You can't buy a car, probably, if you don't have a driver's license. Um, maybe you could. I don't know. I've never tried. It would be interesting to see if that would work. If you want to get a credit card, you got to qualify. If you apply for a job, you got to qualify. You sign up for a school, they want to make sure that you're... Uh, Credits from your previous school or thing, you've got to qualify. You've got to qualify for everything in life. And the question I want to ask this morning is, what qualifications does God have for people that want to serve him? What qualifications did he have of these 12 guys that he called to serve him? 
What kind of people does Jesus use in ministry? What kind of people does it take to advance the kingdom of God? What are the qualifications? And who would meet those qualifications? The, question, the answer to the question is simply nobody. Nobody meets those qualifications. We're all unqualified. So God has only one alternative to use unqualified people. To use unqualified people to do the impossible. That's how God works. I don't know if that makes you feel better. It makes me feel a lot better that God uses unqualified people. You know, he takes an unqualified person and he moves in their life. He causes them to be drawn to Christ, to repent of their sins, to be saved, gloriously transformed. And they have a newfound faith. They have a newfound hunger. They have a newfound desire to be with God's people, to study his word, to pray, to see God work in their life. That's the qualification. Sometimes you can look at your life and you can get kind of discouraged. You can get downright depressed if you look at it too long. But you know what? When I look in the Bible and I begin to look at who God used in the pages of Scripture, I mean, it's amazing when you stop and think about it. When you stop and think about and you read through all the clutter and you begin to realize who these people really are. Just think with me for a second. Think of Noah. He got drunk. Conducted himself in a lewd way. Abraham, he doubted God. He lied about his wife. Then he committed adultery. Then you have Isaac. He basically learned everything from his dad. <laughs> he did the same thing with Rebekah, and then he lied to Abimelech. And then there was Jacob, who literally extorted the birthright out of his brother Esau. He deceived his own father, and he raised a whole bunch of immoral children. Then there was Joseph. He was basically hated by all his brothers. <laughs> and then there was Moses, who was a murderer. Are you getting the picture here? Moses acted in pride, trying to steal God's glory. He struck the rock instead of obediently speaking to the rock, as God had told him. And as a result, he never was able to enter the promised land. That he led his people to. And then you think about Aaron. Aaron was a high priest who led Israel in the worship of the golden calf. And then kind of threw an orgy in there on the side. Then there was Joshua. Joshua, basically, he told God told Joshua to wipe out the Gibeonites. But he was so deceived by the Gibeonites that he made a treaty with them instead. And instead of destroying him, instead of destroying these Gibeonites... They hung around to be trouble for Israel forever, basically. Think of Gideon. He had no confidence in himself, even less in the plan of God and God's power. There was Samson, who was marked with this man who was just had a, a lustful love for this wretched woman that he knew, this, this wretched woman he knew. And then there was Ruth who was basically an accursed Moabitess, but she was in the line of the Messiah. Then there was Samuel, who began to serve God as a little kid. I mean, what did he know? And David, all the time, he was a ladies' man, basically. There's never a lady that he saw he didn't like. 
Solomon, the world's leading polygamist, Ezekiel, brash, tough-minded, crusty, basically said what you think kind of priest. Daniel was an educated in a pagan country. He taught the wisdom of the bitter and hasty Chaldeans. God used Hosea, who, by the way, married a prostitute. He used Jonah, who defied him in direct obedience and headed in the wrong direction, and then got ticked off because God was going to convert some people. He used Habakkuk, who questioned the divine plan. He used Elijah, who could handle 850 false prophets. I love this, but he ran like a little baby from a woman, Jezebel. God even used people like Paul who went about killing Christians before he was one. He used people like Timothy, who was apparently ashamed of Jesus Christ because he, had, he was told by Paul not to be ashamed. See, when you begin to look at these biblical characters in a different light, I don't know about you, but I begin to feel a little bit better about myself. I mean, these guys aren't stellar spiritual giants. Did God use them? Yes, he used them in an incredible way. But it wasn't because of who they were. It wasn't necessarily even because they're qualified. Because they weren't. God uses the unqualified. And when you look at the 12 apostles, what do you see? You see one unqualified person after the next. Now remember, we split these up into three groups of four. And in each group, there's a leader. And he's always mentioned first. And some of these guys are only mentioned in the list. Some of them aren't mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, just when they're being named. So all these guys didn't have the same popularity. They didn't have the same intimacy with Christ. As a matter of fact, if you start with group one there in your outline and go to group three, group, three, group one is the most intimate with Christ, and it goes down from there. So the Lord picked these unqualified guys who were very diverse. They weren't all the same. See, sometimes even if we were to pick a team of people to do something, we would probably want people who you know we get along with and we're all together on, on the same thing. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus picked people who were totally different from one another. And when he turned this over to him, over to them, and they began to run with it, I mean, there was some conflict or whatever, but they got the job done. And eventually they will sit, it says, in judgment on, on the, with the 12 tribes of Israel. So these guys come a long way. Well, who does God use? He uses people like Peter. You know, the guy that always was putting his foot in his mouth. Very bold, very brash. He uses people like Andrew, who was quiet, kind of withdrawn, always back in the shadows. He even used people like James, who was passionate, zealous, one of the sons of thunder, along with his brother John, who just loved the Lord. This morning, I want us to look in verse 3 of Matthew 10, and we see two more individuals there. Philip and Bartholomew, and Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. It's the second group. But we're just going to look at, at Philip and Bartholomew today, or Philip and Nathan. Bartholomew and Nathan are the same person. So first of all, let's look at, at, at Philip. And let's just see here what we can see in Scripture. Remember, as we go down this list, there's going to be less and less about these guys in Scripture. And so it's just kind of a, uh, kind of a decreasing information as we get, get down, and then we're, we'll do a final study with, with Judas Iscariot. 
But his name was basically a Greek name. It meant horse lover. We don't know if he just had a lot of horses, his dad did, or whatever. Uh, it doesn't say. But that's, that's basically what it means. Um, and he's always gone by the name Philip. Some of the guys go by different names, not him. We don't know his Jewish name, as a matter of fact. Um, we have no idea what it is. Um, one of the incidences we're going to look today with Philip is actually later on, he was kind of plugged in at the Greek level. And so when some Greeks wanted to see Christ, all right, they brought these guys to Philip and said, what do we, you know, what do we do? Because they thought he would know because he's from, from a, a, you know, Greek, Hellenistic Greek background. Um, he's always in the second list and he's always listed as number one in the second list. So he's a leader, even among those, that, that second group of four. Uh, we also know that he was probably, he lived in, in Bethsaida for a little while, and he may have even grown up with Peter, Andrew, and, and, and James and John around the fishing business, things like that. Some people believe he was a fisherman. We don't know exactly. Okay, but these four guys were probably pretty close friends with Philip. He kind of hung around with them a lot, things like that, as they were growing up. In John 21, it talks about Andrew uh, with Peter and James uh, and John going fishing, and he's there in that list. Um, None of the Gospels, it's kind of interesting, except John's Gospel, say anything about Philip. They just list his name. The only Gospel that says anything about Philip is John. And he's mentioned in John four times. And so we're going to be spending our time this morning in the Gospel of John. So go ahead and turn over to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And we're going to look, first of all, at a little bit of his characteristic here to begin with, his calling. And we're going to see... uh, what kind of person that, that Philip was that God wanted to use here? In John chapter 1, verse 43, it says there the following day, that means basically the day following Peter and Andrew after they had their encounter with Christ, the day following the time that John the Baptist pointed to Christ and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Do you remember that? Well, this is the day after that. It says the day after, uh, the day following that Jesus would go into uh, forth into Galilee and find Philip and said unto him, follow me. This is the calling of Philip. This is actually the first time Christ ever went to an individual and said, you follow me. It seemed like the other guys kind of were pointed to Christ by John the Baptist or, or they wanted to follow Christ. But, but this is the first instance where we see a direct call of an, a, a disciple, an apostle by Christ himself. And so Peter and Andrew had already met Christ, but they kind of found him and, and came, came along that way. But, but Christ pointed to Philip and he said, you know what? You, you follow me. He walked up and he found him. Um, but it's important to understand that Philip also had a heart that was seeking the Messiah. He had a heart that was searching after God. We know what the Bible says about, you know, God doesn't find people against their will. Okay, God is sovereign in salvation. The Bible says that God has chosen us even before the foundation of the world, those who would be saved. But that doesn't mean that he's going to drag us kicking and screaming into heaven. No, I don't want to go. I don't want to be saved. Well, God says you have to be, so come on. No, it doesn't work that way. God somehow works within our will to carry out his will. If you ever figure that out, you can let me know because I've been pondering that for years and I just don't understand the sovereignty of God and the will of man. It just doesn't seem to go together. 
But you know what? The Bible says that God's ways are not our ways. His ways are much higher. So we're not going to understand everything. That's what makes God, God in us who we are. But he had a seeking heart. And if you look at verse 45, 44, there he says, Now Philip was from Bethesda, Bethsaida, and the city of Andrew and Peter. And then it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. See, what that statement tells me is that somehow Philip was eager to find out who this Messiah was. And he knew that God had promised a Messiah. So he was, he was probably a student of some of the scripture and he was going through this. And as soon as he followed Christ, it says that he went immediately and found his brother, or, or found uh, Nathaniel. And, and so it's, it's kind of a neat, a, a neat example for us. But he was searching the Messiah. The Bible says in, in Luke that the Son of Man came into the world to seek and to save that which is what? Lost. Okay. And he says, if you seek me with all your heart... What will happen? You will find me. All right? It's always interesting when you hear people who, who they get saved and they say, yeah, you know, I found Jesus. Well, technically, no, you didn't. <laughs> you know, uh, first of all, he wasn't lost. And, and secondly, you know, he, he, he found you. But it kind of goes both ways. It seems like it goes both ways, you know, because here Philip is searching for the Messiah, but Jesus definitely finds him. And we know that to be true in, in salvation. So what, what Philip was seeking was truth. Philip was seeking reality. And you know what? God meets a heart that's seeking truth, and, and he'll reveal more truth to that heart. How many of us, before we were saved, were kind of confused maybe about our religion and brought up in a church or whatever, and, and, and the longer we kind of looked at the Bible and looked at it, you know, we kind of got confused, and we thought, well, something's not adding up here. And maybe we weren't even saved yet. And so we, we kind of went down that road, and God revealed more truth to us. And finally, he showed us that we needed a Savior, and we got saved. And then our eyes were open, and we thought, wow, that's, that's incredible. But verse 45 says, we found him who Moses in the law and the prophets spoke. So he must have been seeking the Messiah. He must have been a man who was eager there to, to really search out the Messiah. And that's kind of a... Uh, a good thing to have, that eagerness. Some people, when you try to talk to them about Christ, they don't want to talk to you at all. They just give you the hand. Hey, that's, I'm not into that. Don't, don't go there, pal. But other people, they'll talk to you about religion all day long. But they're not interested in the truth. They just want to debate. But here, he was, he was a God-fearing Jew who was seeking the Messiah. And we also learned that his response when he was found was what? To go find someone else. Right? That's what he did. It says he found Nathaniel. Alright? That's the first evidence of someone actually being saved. Is that they want to tell somebody about it. They want to go out and share their faith with somebody. Maybe they don't know the Bible, the books of the Bible. They don't know all the verses and all that. But they just have an eagerness in their heart to say, You know what? i got to tell you what God has done in my life. And that's the kind of evangelism that works. See, you can line up all these programs that people have today for evangelism. You know, they, they, they're coming out our ears. 
And you can take one person over here who comes to Christ and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to go tell my friends. I'm just going to tell my friends. I'm going to communicate to my friends in the only way I know how that Jesus is the Messiah and he saved me and he forgave me of my sins and my life is different now. I don't even understand the whole thing, but this is what happened. People will listen to that. But, you know, we got all sorts of programs and, you know, some of them work. I'm not being critical of the programs, but sometimes we bypass the practicality of what the church is called to do. The church is called to come together on a Sunday to be edified, to be built up in this place. And then you're to leave these four walls and you go out into a lost and dying world and you're to share what Christ has done, what he has affected in your life with those who have yet to hear the gospel. Those who have yet to respond. That's what we're called to do. That's what Philip did. And sometimes when we get older in our faith and more mature, we kind of grow cold. And we don't have that urgency to tell everybody. We don't have the urgency to be obedient. We don't have the urgency. So we just kind of get cold in our faith and we just go to church. And maybe we may even be serving in church, but that's, it's just something we're doing. There's no life there. There's no passion. And Philip, when he came to Christ, man, he went immediately to Nathaniel. Immediately to Nathaniel. You may be sitting there and say, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, if, if I were to go tell someone who doesn't know Christ about Christ, I don't know who I'd go to. Because, you know, all my friends are Christians. Okay, you got a problem then. you got a problem if all your friends are Christians. If you don't know anybody that's not a Christian. You've isolated yourself. You haven't done what Christ has told you to do, to go out and be the salt and be the light. The only way I know to do that is to go out there and mix it up. And that's what God calls us to do. So Philip made this direct shot to tell to tell Nathaniel he was a seeking Jew after the Messiah, and the Lord found him miraculously. Turn over to John 6, because the next place we see Philip basically here in John 6, is the feeding of the 5,000. And we find out from this instance here that he has a very practical, pragmatic, analytical way of thinking. Because we don't have a lot about this guy, but we see that he's very practical and analytical in his mind. Look at, you know, this is the feeding of the 5,000, but look down at verse 5. Or verse 4, now the Passover, the feast was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, I wonder why he didn't ask the other guys. Did you ever think about that? Why didn't he ask Peter or James or John? No, he asked, he asked Philip. Interesting. I mean, there's some other guys there, but he, he turns to Philip and he asks him. And he asks him this question, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? He's putting Philip kind of under his thumb. He's putting Philip on the spot. And Philip's probably, at first, he's probably thinking, hey, well, the Lord's asked me a question. This is good. But then he looks around and he sees all these people. And he begins to wonder, what, what kind of question is this? Verse 6 says, but this he said to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. See, Jesus wasn't asking 
this question because he didn't know the answer. He was the son of God. That's a good, good way to get information from people. Ask them questions. Ask people questions. What do you enjoy doing? What do you, you know, you just kind of get a rapport with somebody. Pretty soon you're kind of sliding the Lord in there somewhere. But here the Lord was asking Philip, but he wasn't asking because he didn't know. He was asking Philip because he knew who Philip was. He knew what he was thinking in his head before Philip even opened his mouth. And you know what? God knows what all of us are thinking. God knows what's in our heart. He tells us very clearly throughout his word. And so here he turns to Philip, and it just shows you how analytical and how kind of practical this guy is. Look at what he says in verse 7. Philip answered, well, first of all, Lord, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. That every one of them may have a little. You say, well, what does that statement mean? That means Philip's standing there. He's looking out over the crowd of 5,000 plus. I mean, there could have been 20,000 people there, folks. We don't know. It's a big crowd, a big crowd. And when he asked Philip, hey, where are we going to buy uh, bread? Philip immediately begins to calculate in his head. Hey, okay, wait a minute. We only got 200 uh, denarii here, which obviously that's not enough. Maybe if we bought, a, you know, if we bought this much of this bread and everybody just kind of took a bite of the, the biscuit and passed it, maybe now that wouldn't work either. He had it all figured out. And there's people like that. You know, there's people that you can go talk to about your finances and your finances are in a mess. And you walk in their office and they'll say, okay, what's your income? What's your, and they put all the stuff in and they say, okay, here's what you need to do. Boom. It's done. Five, ten minutes. They know exactly what to do. That's the kind of guy Philip was. He knew exactly what was needed in this situation. And Philip answered him and said, you know what? Uh, Lord, this isn't going to happen. He gives him an instant answer. He doesn't say, let me think about this. He doesn't say anything else. He just gives him an answer. It's not going to work. You know, and that, that proves basically that he was in charge of their kind of resources. I mean, Judas was in charge of the money. But Philip was maybe kind of administrative enough to kind of, you know, they're going to this next town and you've got to feed 12 people, maybe more than that. There's probably other people with their party that traveled with them, you know. So, I mean, there had to be some arranging going on. And Philip was that kind of guy. He's kind of the front man, you know. He lined everything up and counted it. So they get 200 days wages and begin to kind of break it up and say, you know, we've got these barley biscuits. I don't know. This isn't going to work. It's not going to work. It's impossible. And he, that's what he concludes. It can't be done. Never even entered his mind as he's standing there before the Lord that, you know what, this guy's supernatural. I mean, I've seen this guy do some incredible stuff. It didn't even enter his mind. He's so caught up in the books, so caught up in calculating what needed to be done and how it was going to work out. And when he realized it didn't add up on paper, he just said, sorry, you can't do it. I don't care who you are. We don't have the money. See, he had too much arithmetic to be adventurous in his life. You ever meet people like that? They put a damper on every good idea. They put a, just a, you know, they throw the, the water on the fire when you come up with that. No, we can't do that. No way. 
We've all dealt with people like that. We've been people like that at times, maybe. See, people have, Philip had a sense of the impossible, and he just realized, you know what, this is no way this can be done. A good leader, one writer said, a good leader has a sense of the possible. In other words, they look at something, they say, you know what, we're going to get this done. Once in a while, I'll watch on TV The Apprentice, you know, and they get these people, and, you know, especially with this celebrity thing, it's kind of weird. But anyway, they put them in a room and they say, okay, this is your task. You know, you're going to go sell hot dogs in New York, or whatever, it's just something weird. And I'm thinking, man, here are these guys trying to figure out. And it's, it's interesting to watch the different personalities go back and forth and try to get this task done. Philip was kind of like a bean counter. He just counted everything that, you know, he just knew where everything was and everything was had its place. But you know what? The right answer that Philip should have given was, you know what, Lord? <laughs> you made the wine at Canaan. We saw that. You fed your children in the wilderness with manna. Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it, but just go do it. You're God. A little bit of bread is no big deal for you. That should have been his answer. I mean, these people came to hear you. It's not really our problem whether they had nothing to need. It's your problem, Lord. Now deal with it. That should have been his response. And you know what? That should be our response. When God throws something in our lap that doesn't add up, and we're struggling with it, and it's an issue, and we're just oh, worrying, worrying, we're, you know, how, how's this going to work out? Someone once said, you know what, the problem is, is we're always introducing our big problems to God. And someone said, you need to turn that around. You need to introduce your big God to your problems. Because, beloved, we serve a big God. We serve a God who, I don't care what you're going through. Even now, he could, you know, just boom, it's gone. It's dealt with. That's the kind of God we serve. Philip totally bypassed that. He was a facts and figures guy, methodical, mechanical, had no inner interest or understanding of the supernatural, very practical, common sense kind of guy. We need people like that. See, people like that keep Peter and other guys kind of reined in. <laughs> but there comes a time where you have to kind of let go and say, you know what, God, I don't know how this is going to work, but we're going to trust you. Third instance we see Philip in is John 12, John 12, he not only was seeking the Messiah and was practical and kind of analytical in his thinking, but in John 12, verse 20, this is the instance where the Greeks uh, wanted to see the Lord. It says, now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip. All right, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So these were God-fearing Greeks. They came to the Passover, and they came because they were devout to Judaism. That's why they would come. And somehow they heard about Christ. And they looked at the apostles and said, Hey, that, that, you know, that guy, we know, Philip, that's Greek. We'll go see, see him. We're Greek. We kind of identify with the Greek. So we'll, we'll, it's funny how that works. There's the gentleman down here at the coffee shop. He's, he's Greek, older gentleman. And, uh, 
he comes in and he's got to sit in this chair, the same chair every time. Everybody gets in his chair, man. It's this bad day in the coffee shop, you know. But nice guy. But he goes up to one of the Greek Orthodox churches here and he's always, they're always having barbecues and food and lamb and all sorts of things, baklava, all sorts of Greek food they have. And, uh, he's always telling me about, you know, the camaraderie that he has with his fellow Greeks. He's got a, a, a group of Greeks that they go down to the, the, uh, uh, mall and they, they solve all the problems of the world, he says. There's that camaraderie there. Well, that's what was, was showing up here. They saw Philip and they said, hey, we, we got a, you know, a Greek connection here. And he, they, they, they pointed, looked at, looked at Philip and said, hey, we want to go see the Lord. Uh, what do we do? Look at what happens in verse 22. Philip came and what's he do? Tells Andrew. And in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. What's this say about Philip? It says basically that he was kind of indecisive. He was kind of indecisive. He, he was very much very analytical in his thinking. But he probably, as these Greeks approached him, I mean, you know, he probably thought, well, wait a minute. I don't, you know, I don't know how this is going to work. Is this a kosher thing to do here? How, you know, I wonder what Jesus is going to think about. Just drag these guys over there. Very indecisive. Whereas Peter would say, hey, come on, we're, we're taking to the Lord. Okay? But see, Philip was just, you know, very indecisive that way. He was still living, basically, in chapter 10 of Matthew. When the Lord said, I came not, or I came but for the lost sheep of the house of who? Israel. And Philip, poor Philip, sitting there going, well, these Greeks, they're not Israel. I don't know what to do. Rather than just take him to Jesus and let him deal with it, he was very kind of, wasn't forceful. He wasn't decisive and things like that. So he went and got Andrew, and then they both took him. Figured, yeah, you know, if he's going to yell, at least he'll yell at both of us if we make a mistake here. You know, some people are that way. They don't want to step out and, 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 and do anything on their own. They're very indecisive. Third, fourth thing we see in John 14, verse 8, we finally see this is the only accounts that we have of Philip in Scripture. Now, this is three, basically, three years later here. Okay, Philip says to Jesus, the night before, um, this is the, the Passover, communion, and uh, he's going to be arrested and he's going to be crucified. And so, it's coming down to this. And in, in John 14, 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Okay, Jesus just got done dealing with Thomas, who we'll deal with later, but, uh, you know, he, he was wanting to know, are you really Christ, all this stuff. And, and Philip still hasn't got this thing down. Um, and the night before Christ is going to be arrested, he's going, show us the Father. And, and, and Jesus is just kind of uh, taken back by this. Verse 9, he says, Have I been with you so long? And yet you have not known me, Philip? See, he, he lacked a spiritual perception. He was too, too busy in the books, calculating everything out, and he missed the whole thing. said, he has seen me as seen the Father. 
Don't you believe that, Philip? Amazing. He was kind of a... He didn't have a, a very, very much of a spiritual perception to him. He was skeptical. He was kind of unconvinced in that way. I mean, here's a, a man who basically is stuck on the levels of rules and codes and numbers and how things add up instead of truly seeing what God can do and what God is doing. He saw all the facts and figures, but he really missed the big picture of, of the power of grace. His faith was limited by money and circumstances and proof. What's interesting, because he finally gets his act together, apparently, and tradition tells us that he wound up dying as a martyr for Christ, that he wouldn't deny. And the way he was martyred was he was stripped naked, according to tradition. They hung him by his feet upside down, and they pierced great holes in his ankles and in his thighs so that the blood would pour out. And slowly he would die. And they said that he had only one request. And that was when he was dead that they not wrap his body in linen like his Lord because he wasn't worthy of it. I mean, I'm glad that God uses the slow, the faithless, the analytical kind of skeptical people. Because you know what? Among that group, we find ourselves... We find ourselves. That was the man who Philip was. But God still used him. The second guy I want to look at this morning is Bartholomew or Nathan. His first name, by the way, was Nathan. His last name was Bartholomew. Bartolmei, son of Tolmei is what that means. Nathan means gift of God. Uh, and he was so different from his friend, Philip. We don't know a lot about him either. But he was full of faith. And he was so contemplative and meditative. And he was just in awe of anything supernatural. He was just a kind of a spiritually in tune kind of guy. And he was the kind of guy that immediately, as soon as you give him some information, he processes it and goes, yeah, that makes sense. I'm on, I'm on board. You have to think about it. You have to get back to me next week. None of that. He just was able to just process it and boom, either this is true or it's not. And he'd make the call and he'd go in that direction. He came from Cana of Galilee, a little village in Galilee. He was brought to Jesus by uh, Philip. We just talked about that. Um, only one passage in the Bible tells us about him, and it's in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. So go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. And look at verse 43. John chapter 1, verse 43. We see from this that he was obviously a student of Scripture. It says, The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and it said to him, Follow me. And Philip was from Bethesda, the, son of, uh, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found, uh, found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophet spoke, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And look at what he says in verse 46. Nathanael said to him, Bartholomew, same name, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
See, the first thing we think we see about this is he was also a student of Scripture. Because he, he totally understood what Philip was talking about. He didn't say, who, Messiah, what? No, he totally understood what he, where he was going with this. He was a searcher of divine truth. But we also see that he had some issues. In verse 46, we see that he was prejudiced. Just by that comment, can anything good come out of? I mean, you know, that's such a, 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 a deriding comment. Now, you have to understand, back then, Nazareth is this little rinky-dinky town. Okay, and obviously there were some, you know, football rivals or something with Canaan because that's where where uh, Nathan was from. So, you know, they had something going on there. And he just basically, you got to be kidding me. The Messiah is from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of that? He had a built in prejudice. He looked at those people as uneducated. No class, rowdy place. They lived on the other side of the tracks kind of mentality is what they thought. And you know what? That's the way prejudice works. That's the way prejudices are. Prejudices always keep people from Christ in general. A prejudice basically, it's an uncalled for generalization based on feelings of superiority. Uncalled for generalization based on feelings of superiority. So here's Nathan. He just blankets that whole town of Nazareth and says nothing's ever good come out of there and nothing's ever going to come out of there. Impossible. So he shows his prejudice toward this town, the whole town, not just one individual, the whole town. And then you look at verse, um, a little further, 47. It says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no what? Guile or deceit. <clears throat> I mean, what an, what an incredible statement that the Lord makes of Nathaniel. Sees him just coming toward him. And he says, Whoa, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. I mean, some of us wish that maybe at the end of our life, in the end of our ministry, somehow maybe we'll hear faintly those words from the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, we kind of live for that. We'll die for that. Maybe one day we'll hear that. Can you imagine starting off your ministry with Jesus? And he says, whoa, somebody with no deceit in Israel indeed. I mean, that, that's incredible. He was very, very affirming of Nathaniel. That shows that he had a real sincere heart. Nathaniel wasn't kind of this, you know, wishy-washy kind of guy. He showed prejudice, but he was able to overcome that. And he was the kind of guy that when the facts were given to him, when Philip pointed out, hey, this is the Messiah, he processed it and said, hey, no problem. I totally believe this. My training's taught me to look this way, and this is, this is the Messiah, obviously. No wavering. Very sincere heart. You know, that's what God needs from us. He doesn't need a bunch of gifted people with incredible talents and gifts. He needs people who are willing to, to be sincere in heart in their search for the truth. And lastly, we see of Nathan that he also had a very eager faith. In the same text, 
And it's unfortunate, but this is all we have about him, basically. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? (laughs) That's an interesting question in and of itself. I mean, can you imagine if the Lord walked up to you and said, Whoa, you know, a man, a Christian indeed, in whom there's no deceit. And you looked at him and said, How do you know me? The Lord knew him because he knew he was a God seeker. He knew he was sincere. Jesus answered because he knew that Nathaniel needed an answer. And look at what he says in verse 50. He says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Or, or verse 49, Nathaniel answered and said, Rabbi, or back further, I guess, verse 48 How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, this is interesting, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. How did you know I was under a fig tree? Okay, all this points basically in, in, in summary to God's omniscience. Christ was showing Nathaniel that, you know what? I have known you for, well, the Bible says, before we were even born. And look at his reaction. That's all he needed. Verse 49. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He didn't say anything else. Full on commitment. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible when you think about it. That that's his encounter with Christ. Those couple verses, that's it. And then he's on board. I mean, for some people it works that way. Some people, you know, you, you, you meet somebody and you go up to them and you share the Lord with them and, and you share the gospel and they're just like, wow, all right, yeah, yeah, how do I get this? You know, I'll pray the prayer, yeah. And they're, they're born again. And you maybe spend five or ten minutes with them. And you're thinking, wow, is this for real? Because sometimes it's not. But it does. It takes. And boy, they start coming to church and they're plugged in, they're sharing their faith, they're just on fire for the Lord and you're just going, wow, that is incredible. Why doesn't Uncle Charlie respond that way when I share the gospel with him? I've been sharing the gospel with Uncle Charlie for 20 years. You know, I mean, some people, it it works differently. But Nathaniel was the kind of guy it just meant immediately. He knew it. This is the Messiah, but I'm committed. But as we read, three years later, he was a little unsure... (laughs) Hey, show us the Father, Jesus. He was, he was still wavering a little bit. But you know, it's important for us to see that God uses all kinds of people. He really does. He uses bolsters people like Peter, quiet people like Andrew, loving people like John, passionate people like James, people like Nathaniel. People like Philip who are counting every dime. Know where everything has its place. We don't know how Nathaniel was martyred. We know he was martyred. I mean, there's some stories out there. One story says that he was tied up and put in a sack and thrown in the ocean. Another one says that he was crucified. We don't know. 
history, nor the Bible tells us. But we do know that God used Nathaniel, God used Philip in a glorious way, and, and it's not because of who they were. We've got to get over that hump. God uses great faith, clear understanding, meditative souls like Nathaniel. He uses people like Philip who were kind of slow and plodding and dull and thick and mechanical and analytical and weak faith. And he takes those raw materials that those people have and he, he makes them into the people that he wants them to be. That's what's incredible. See, we don't need to, in our own selves, think that we can qualify to be part of God's team because we don't. We're all sinners. We're all saved by God's grace. I'm going to ask you this morning, do you qualify among the unqualified? Have you put your faith, your trust in Christ for your salvation? Because, see, that's all that's needed in God's list of qualifications to spend eternity with him one day. He doesn't care what your talents are. He doesn't care what your giftings are. He doesn't care how smart you are, how many degrees you have. He cares where is your heart. What's the condition of your heart? The Bible tells us that it's wicked and desperately evil. The Bible tells us that our heart will condemn us to hell unless it's touched by the grace of God. The only way you can qualify to be on God's team is to come God's way, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Father, we thank you this morning that we have a chance, opportunity to look at these two guys and And, Lord, we thank you that you use all kinds of people. Father, if it wasn't for your grace, none of us would be saved, let alone allowed to be used by you. We thank you that your word encourages our hearts. Father, when we look through the Old Testament, we look at some of the people that you used to further your work, your ministry, your kingdom. It's amazing. They weren't the top-notch leaders of their society. They were murderers and even rapists and liars. And God, you, you touched them and transformed them. And Lord, there's not a person here today that you can't touch. If they cry out to you, be merciful to me, a sinner, Lord. It's not so much what we are or who we are. It's what you're going to make us, what you're going to mold us into, what you're going to shape us to be. But we have to be willing to allow that to happen. We have to be willing to be disciples who are willing to be apostles, those who are sent out into a lost and dying world with the message of the gospel. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. pray that you would just minister it to our hearts, apply it. And dismiss us with your blessing now. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.